So a lot of people in the hills and maybe some people here today will know what it's like to rebuild your home after a disaster. So there are people here, I'm sure, who would remember the Ash Wednesday bushfires in this region and what they did uh, to the towns in our area. And um, that was something that's receding into history. It's now 36 years ago, but it still has an effect on people today here and both those who came back after it happened and those who didn't. And it can take a long time, we know then, through these sort of experiences to rebuild a home and to rebuild a life after that kind of disaster. And I say that because this is something that the people of Judah in the Old Testament, God's people, who they understood this experience very well. Uh, Our series this term is looking at the experience that these people had as they returned to the city of Jerusalem after the exile in Babylon uh, to rebuild and to restore their nation. And last term, if you remember, we looked through the book of Jeremiah and that's a book that described what it was like for the Jews to go through the experience of having their homes destroyed by the Babylonian army and to be taken away into exile. And this was in 587 BC. And so in that time, the city of Jerusalem, which was the city of God's people and his worship, was destroyed. And it was largely emptied of people and left shattered and ruined like a town after a bushfire has passed through. And a large part of the Jewish population was deported and scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire, seemingly never to return. And that's where Jeremiah leaves us. And Jeremiah and many other Jews saw this as a judgment of God on their people for their failures, particularly their failure to live the way that the people of God should. But the exile, we read in the Old Testament, that's not the end of that story as we heard. There was a promise and a hope that one day God's people would be forgiven and return from exile to their home again. And the Jewish people in Babylon, we know, held on to this promise very tightly and the dream that one day they would be in Jerusalem again as they was it supposed to be, and it would be a glorious place full of the presence of God. And many of the books of the Old Testament, the later prophets, um, talk about the hope of that time to come, which they were looking forward to. And eventually, and very surprisingly in terms of history, they actually did return one day from exile. They came back. So after a couple of decades, the city of Babylon itself was conquered by the Persian Empire. And the Persian king Cyrus who did that conquering, he was actually a very diplomatic man and he wanted to strengthen his empire by sending back exiled people back to their country to rebuild their cities because then they would be loyal to him and strengthen his own empire. So the book of Ezra, which we've started reading from today, it begins with a record of the decision of King Cyrus. So the first verses say, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfil the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem in Judah. And any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And may their God be with them. And so with that proclamation, the rebuilding of Jerusalem began. And so this, is, this story of rebuilding is the story that's recorded in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's, it's two books in our Bible, but it's really one book in two parts, if you read it together. Um, and so Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the restoration of Jerusalem over several generations. And so we're going to look at selections of those stories in this series on building up. 
And Ezra and Nehemiah focus on the efforts of these two men, Ezra and Nehemiah, and their part that they played in the process. So Ezra was one of the earlier leaders in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and he focused on restoring the traditional laws and the culture of the Jewish people after they came back from exile. And Nehemiah, who came a bit later, he was more focused on uh, logistical things. We know him as the man responsible for rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem and the buildings of it and making it a strong city again. So this story in Ezra and Nehemiah is a very interesting one for us today, I think, as we look at it, because as Christians, because as I read it, I think it gives us a clear picture of what it means for us to build or to rebuild our life with God, as these men and their followers did. So the question that it looks at for me is, what does it mean and what does it look like uh, to put into practice the hope that we have in Christ? So to trust in God's promises and in God's goodness throughout the lives that we have that are often a bit messy and difficult and confronting, um, but to persevere with that, as these people did. So last week we started our series by looking at the prophecies of Haggai. You'll remember Jerome looked at that last week. He was another of the early leaders in this restoration of Jerusalem. And Haggai had very inspiring and positive words to the people about what God was going to do in Jerusalem and its new temple. So we read in Haggai chapter 2, This is what the Lord Almighty says, In a little while I will will once more shake the, the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and what is desired by all the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord God Almighty. And so listening to these promises and the kind of things they've been reflecting on, the the exiles came home from Babylon charged up with the hope that the glory of the Lord was going to return to his temple and this marvellous future was going to come for their people. But what they found when they got there waiting for them was a burnt out, ruined city, poor and struggling, enemies all around, a place where they had to scrabble around just to find enough to eat, and let alone experiencing this sort of glorious abundance. You know? And it was a place where they had to slowly, brick by brick, rebuild this place over many years. And so the gap between the great hopes they had and the reality that they encountered when they returned, it was a really uh, big gap. And so the process of rebuilding Jerusalem was very hard, it took a very long time, and there was a lot of suffering and sacrifice along the way. And it was a stage-by-stage journey, and we see it goes on for generations in the Bible story. But the people who came back, they were driven on in that journey by their vision of this future that God had given them and the promises that he'd made. And so as I think as we look at this story of the rebuilding of Jerusalem this term, we can, we can actually find a description of the pattern that we ourselves go through in our life with Christ as we're building with him. So I think it has a direct relevance to us. So, because, you know, when we come to Jesus, if you say, I want to change my life, I want to follow him, our lives are, in a sense, an invitation to rebuild with him the lives that we have, in the same way that Jerusalem was rebuilt after the exile. And I think exile is a great theme, because when Jesus spoke about what it's like for someone to come back to God after being away from him, he used that metaphor. We know, he told the story of the parable of the prodigal son which you might be familiar with. It's in Luke chapter 15. So in this, in this story, Jesus says that when someone acknowledges their need for God and comes back to him, we are like this son who has gone away into self-imposed exile from his family to do other things and realises eventually I need to come back um, from this distant land and come home to a new life with my father. And so to put our trust in Jesus then is to return from exile and to rebuild our life with God. It's the same process. So as we look through the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, I want us to ask, you know, how does this story of these 
people? How does that map onto our own experiences of our life with God and what it means to grow with him? Because I think it tracks quite clearly and it's quite revealing. Um, So another way, I just want to give you another way of thinking about this same issue and the relevance of this story for us. Sometimes as Christians we talk about being saved. You're familiar with that kind of way of talking. So we say, if I put my trust in Jesus, I will be saved and all my sins will be forgiven and I can receive eternal life. It's great. And we can put that to each other sometimes as a simple either-or question. Are you saved? So I might walk up to you if I was feeling very bold and say, Russell, are you saved? And you might say, yes. You know, I might go, Anne, are you saved? Yes, good. Okay. A bit confronting if you say, oh, no. But um, that's a good question, conversation to have as well. Um, but in another way, the question of salvation is actually a bit bigger than that simple question, which is yes or no. Now, I can't find the specific reference to this story or when it happened, but I seem to remember that once upon a time there was a Christian leader, I think he was an Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, and someone asked him, are you saved? Now, that's a fairly bold thing to ask the Archbishop of Canterbury. I don't think I'd do it. Um, But what what he said was in answer, well, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. I have been saved, I am being saved. And I will be saved. And I think that's actually a good way of answering that question, not yes or no. Um, Because what this tells us is the truth, and the Bible backs this up, that salvation is actually a story. And there are many ways to talk about salvation along the way. So the Christian journey starts with being saved, you know. Through the cross of Jesus, we know our sin has been forgiven. We are saved from sin. We are saved from death to be with God once again. And that's not anything I can earn. It is a gift that God gives through his grace. So when we say, are you saved? You say, well, yes, I have been saved. I couldn't do it. I have been saved. But there's more to it than that. You know? I am being saved. Because to be saved in the Bible is also to be healed. That's what the word means as well, to be saved, to be healed. So... After having been saved, I am being now healed and transformed by God's spirit. I'm becoming more like Jesus. I'm actually working out this salvation. So if someone says to you, are you saved? We say, well, I am being saved. Um, Not quite there yet in the sense, but I'm on the way. Uh, And finally, salvation, in the end, it means this kind of completion of this process, this complete transformation. We've become what we were made to be. We're with God. Jesus has promised we will see his glory set free for eternal life with God, experiencing his glory directly. So if you said to me, in that sense, are you saved, Andrew? Or you say, well, yes, I will be saved. Not there yet, but I will be. I know I will. So these are three stages in salvation. If you want technical terms, if you like to study theology, these are justification, sanctification, and glorification. But I think this is an easier way of remembering than those words. So... What we're doing when we think about Ezra and Nehemiah, I think, and their story of rebuilding Jerusalem, what we're looking at is this middle stage here. Sanctification. Sorry, sanctification. Can't even say it. I won't say it anymore. Uh, or a season when you say, the season when we say, I am being saved. So that's what, that's what we're talking about here. When we become a Christian, there's this experience of grace. You know, I've been saved. I've forgiven. And there's the promise of God, what God's going to do to me. I will be saved. But... In between is this process of healing and the process of transformation. I'm being saved. And so it's this process of rebuilding and building our life with God from the various states it was without him when we were in exile. And that process is like the rebuilding of Jerusalem. If you've been through it, if you're on the way, you'll know it's hard work. 
it's often slow and difficult, it's often confusing, and it's a bit discouraging at times as the rebuilding of Jerusalem was. So we come to God, we're like a ruined house, you know, we've been burnt out from within, and we need a lot of work even just to be safe to enter and to do work, and there's a lot to be done. And so the time of our salvation on this earth, in one sense, is the, start, is the work through of this time. I'm being saved. And it's the time between the beginning of this process and the fulfilment of it, which we know Jesus will bring us to. And it's the many years we have to live out our faith and our salvation in the world. So the Apostle Paul talked about this process in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. As Paul's saying, because God has saved us, because he's working in us, and we're trusting in him that he will save us, we continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So we're talking in this term, how do we work out our salvation? And does that make, uh, does it make sense? You know? So we're thinking about how do we do that? How do we work out our salvation? So anyway, now I want to turn to our reading today from Ezra 3. And thank you, Anne. Yes, there are a lot of names in there, so we always do it. Done well. Um, we read in that chapter about the restoration of worship and the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So because the early chapters of Ezra show that basically the first things that the exiles did when they returned from Jerusalem was to work at restoring the pattern of worship that they believed they should be doing and then to work on rebuilding the temple so that they could be worshipping in the proper way. And that was before they started working on more practical things like the city wall. Now, I wonder what we would prioritise if we were rebuilding our town from scratch, if something terrible happened and we had to rebuild. What would you start with here? Some people would say, oh, we need a community centre first. Let's rebuild the Hills Hub again. It'll only take another five to ten years. Uh, Or you might rebuild the school first, if that's important. You might say, oh, we need the library, or we need a bank, we need a shop, we need a grocery store. Many of us would say, first thing, absolutely, is we need to get a cafe going, otherwise this this place is never going to be worth anything. Um, So, you know, what would you do first? But the first thing these exiles did when they returned was to try to start building the temple. That was their first priority. But even before that was possible, we can see they said, well, we want to get our worship services re-established. Because the temple was expensive, it was complicated to build, and they couldn't wait for it to be finished before they started worshipping. And so they just rebuilt an altar, we read, and they began conscientiously observing the worship services in the law of Moses. And they went into this, as we heard, in very careful and very thorough detail. I won't read uh, verses 3 to 6 again, but that was the all these different types of services that they read. You know, it's all there. And it's funny because when you read it, you realise these are people who are essentially following the instruction manual for worship of the blueprints that they've got. They've got the law of Moses, and these probably hadn't, hadn't been used. And they said, well, we're actually going to try and figure out what we should be doing in worship. So we're going to do everything that it says here and get it, try and get it right. Um, so the question is, why would they do that? Well, it's clear that they understood what they were doing in that was beginning the restoration of their city by restoring what was at the heart of their nation and what should be. That was their close relationship with God and drawing close to God at the centre of their lives. And they realised this is the priority. And they knew this was important because it was what they had lost before and during the time of the exile. This ability to worship God in the way that they should. The first and most important commandment in the Old Testament law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your strength. And so that's the first thing they tried to do. And they tried to build everything around that. Having spent decades in exile to reflect on what had happened, they wanted, I want to get, so we want to get this right now. I'm very passionate about not making the same mistakes as we made beforehand. And so, as we heard, they started with a renewed set of worship services. And then they gave their resources and expertise towards rebuilding of the temple. And the passage we read, it finished with them rejoicing because the foundation of the temple had been laid. And some of them were joyful about it. And we read there's that poignant bit where those who were old enough to have seen the old temple, they wept. They wept because they never thought they would see this happen, that God would allow them to rebuild. Now, the temple took quite a while to be rebuilt after this, as we read. There were difficulties along the way, particularly there were their enemies around who didn't want them to finish. And it was only in the reign of the following king, King Darius of Persia, that the temple was completed. And if you read the next few chapters of Ezra, up to chapter 6, you can read about that. But this was the first step for them in the restoration of their nation. And it was a preparation for this glorious future that they were waiting to come. They had been saved, they had been saved from exile... And they were being saved in this land again and being healed from the consequences of their sin and seeing God do new things in their midst. And they knew that they would be saved when he came again. And so that began with the restoration of the heart of their city, the place where they worshipped, the temple. And so I think this is a true picture for us of our own process of working out our salvation and the process of building with God that you and me go through and everyone who follows Jesus goes through. So the first thing in our life it says that needs to be changed when we're saved is that our heart before God needs to be changed and the worship that nourishes that relationship needs to be put in place. The first thing, as we'll see as we go on, there are other things that come, like the moral behaviour and the way that we uh, you know, live and the things that we do as followers of Jesus. But the first thing is to start to learn what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart? That's the true heart of worship. It's its inner meaning. And we do that, as these Jews did, by actually worshipping regularly in a disciplined way and giving our time and attention to that. So we read they had their morning and evening services, the sacrifices that they would bring. They had many special days of of thanksgiving and worship and that reminded them constantly what God had done for them and they brought their lives to him every day. And for us, we know this is a spiritual discipline of worship that Christians take part in. Our daily times with God, we pray, we come to him, share our lives with him each day, and the special weekly celebrations we have here at, our, at St Mark's, and the, and the big festivals and the special occasions when we remember the special things that God has done for us. And to centre our lives on him and open our hearts to him, and that's the rhythm and the discipline of worship, and that's what it's for, to restore our heart before God and to allow us to build our lives with him. There's a wonderful idea in Christian spirituality. It's called the prayer of the heart, and it's something I'd like to talk a lot more about in the, in the years to come. This is a particular kind of prayer that is not focused on the words that we say to God, but about who we are before him. Um, the attitude of openness to God in our whole lives, allowing and inviting God's grace to flow into us in prayer and to flow out of us from the centre of our being, from our heart, to those around us. And in the prayer of the heart, you know, everything we do when we learn is supposed to come from a tangible experience of the love of Jesus moving in us, the presence of God in our lives. This is the invitation that God gives to his people. 
And this type of prayer is something that's built in our hearts and grows and develops over time through dedicated and passionate worship and attention that we give to God and his presence in our midst. It's an aspect of our working out of our salvation. God places it in us at the beginning. You know, we invite Jesus into our heart. But as we're transformed by God's presence, we experience that. And as Paul says, we're working out our salvation because it's God who works within us. And the invitation is for that to become more and more clear as we go on. And I think this, this story in Ezra points to this kind of transformation which God's people in that time were hoping for when they came back. Through their worship, they were hoping... And the rebuilding of the temple, they were hoping and yearning that the presence on the glory of the Lord would return to their midst and he would dwell with them in the way that he had before. Now the sad thing about Ezra and Nehemiah as we read them is because we know the further story because we have the New Testament. We know that it becomes clear over time that these returned exiles didn't really quite understand what God was calling them to, what it was they were hoping for, and how to remain open to God's work and to, to invite him into their hearts. And so they weren't actually ready for him when he did return several centuries later. So, Because we know the Lord that they were hoping for actually did return to his temple. He did come back to be with his people. But they, when he did, they didn't receive him. They weren't ready. They had not opened their hearts to him. So we know Jesus came to the temple in Jerusalem. The Lord returned to dwell among his people and they weren't ready. And he found, though, when he came to the temple, lots of people busy of the activity of outer worship, doing lots of things, these services. But they lost the heart of it because they'd become distracted by these things they were doing and they weren't open in their hearts to God, so they rejected him. So we read in all the Gospels that Jesus actually judged this temple, unfortunately, was a failure in its renewal. Uh, and he never really spent much time there. But he focused on what he, on the true plan was, which was to build a, a true temple, the community of God's people, uh, the community of the Holy Spirit, and that, of course, includes us in church today. God's building a people to live with um, and to worship him truthfully. So when we talk about worship and when you think about worship in your life, we often think about our Sunday services here and what we do here, how often I come and what I do here and all that kind of stuff. Very helpful conversation to have. But what God is inviting us to is actually a life that is open to him. He's inviting us to worship him with our hearts and to invite him into everything. That's the, the point of it. Activity can become a distraction of that. Because, but regular work, a regular rhythm of worship is part of the process of rebuilding our life with God and is the start of it. It's the foundation that we lay to allow God to work in our lives. So the key question I think I want to ask as we get into our series um, and we finish this reflection today is this. So as we go on in worship today and we go out, to what extent is my life, to what extent is our community shaped by a passionate desire for the presence of God? and for that to be the heart of our whole life. Because that's the foundation of this rebuilding project, rebuilding our life with God together. So let me pray as we reflect on that this morning. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that through your cross, through your resurrection, we have been saved. We pray that 
here in our community and all of us would work out our, that salvation with fear and trembling as God works in us. We pray you would teach us what it means to worship you truthfully, to be filled in our heart with the presence of God. And I pray that all of us would understand as we rebuild with you the process that we go through. You would guide us, give us grace, give us strength and encourage each other on the way. And we pray that we would be ready for you when you do return and come into our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.